You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producer's Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. No one likes to have an empty seat, but that's especially true at the beginning of a run when you're trying to jumpstart that word of mouth. Well, if you're looking to make sure every seat in your house is filled, then check out the site theaterextras.com. Perfect for producers or venue managers who want to make sure they have a butt in every single seat. Or if you're looking to be one of those people that fill those seats, check out theaterextras.com. That's theater with an E-R, extras.com. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Ken Davenport here. You're listening to the Producer's Perspective podcast. My guest on the today's podcast is none other than Tony Award winner Richard Maltby. Welcome, Richard. Well, nice to be here. So Richard won that Tony for his direction of Ain't Misbehavin', which he also conceived as well. He's had a very varied career, winning many, many hats from director to book writer to lyricist. Uh, directed and wrote the lyrics for Big, directed Song and Dance, wrote the lyrics for Nick and Nora, lyrics for Miss Saigon, created and directed Fosse and Ring of Fire, book and lyrics for Pirate Queen, uh, and lots more, including the review Closer Than Ever, which is where I first fell in love with your work. Uh, And this interesting known fact, he conceived and directed the only two musical reviews to win the Tony Award for Best Musical, Ain't Misbehaving, and Fosse. I know. I thought of, I thought that was kind of an interesting statistic. Yeah, so Only let, two have won, and I've directed both of them. So let's start Why there. Enough. Let's start there, then. Why do you think that is? What, what gives... Why am I the king of reviews? <laughs> yes. I, I am the king of reviews because I don't like reviews. Uh, I, I don't... The, the standard review that used to be a song... A comedy song, a ballad, a sketch, a comedy song, you know, that sort of thing. Or some kind of evening in which there was um, a compare of some sort, and some, you know, a, a host who would sort of introduce the song and introduce. Uh, I thought that was just theatrically uh, boring. And so when um, the Manhattan, when Lynn Meadow, um, who was the head of the Manhattan Theater Club, who I knew because at 12 years old, she was in the chorus of a musical that David and I wrote, David Shire and I wrote at, uh, at Yale. And uh, we, we had a, a chorus of school kids in one number and she was in it. And I'm afraid I changed her life. And so when she graduated from the drama school, uh, she came in and was offered the Manhattan Theater Club, then a failing idea um, uh, that, that didn't have any life and nobody wanted it. And she said, well, I'll take it. It's a theater in New York. I got it. And uh, she was having some trouble, uh, you know, getting it getting it going. Um, and and I, I did some benefits for her and everything. And, and uh, there, there was this sort of um, restaurant space, this bar, and she wanted to make it into some kind of cabaret space and didn't know whether or not it could have anything in there could have any kind of artistic content. And she suggested that David and I do a review um, of our songs. Um, um, we decided to do it. I mean, a lot of them were songs from shows that had failed, and so you know, things that had never been performed, and little numbers in reviews and things like that. And and uh, I said yes. So I had this body of songs, and. Uh, I didn't quite know what to do. I just knew that I didn't want to have it in, 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 uh, I didn't want a narration. And so um, when we started to stage it, I did the, I had them sing the opening number and I didn't know what to do and I didn't sing it again and I didn't know what to do and I did this about 12 times and just sing it again. I really didn't know what to do. And, and finally, just to help me, was two girls and one and, and one guy. Um, the guy went to one of the girls and started to sing to her. And I thought, why didn't he go to the other one? I thought, oh, God, I've got a plot. 
So I, I put together the first six songs as a kind of a story of a guy involved with two girls, um, just going song to song to song, and, and you kind of you kind of followed the story. So you were following a story. It was a review. It was just a collection of songs, but you were following a story. And um, so I sort of accidentally invented the bookless book musical. Um, and a year later, uh, that show was, was successful and, and moved out, you know, off Broadway and ran for a year. And uh, uh, Lynn said, well, I have an open space again. You were talking about liking all those Fats Waller songs. Would you like, why don't you make some kind of cabaret evening out of that? I thought, oh, okay, all right. Um, so, you know, we went into rehearsal. It's a kind of great trajectory. We went into rehearsal on January 1st of uh, 1978. We uh, opened on February 1st. We closed on March 1st. On April 1st, we opened, we went into rehearsal for Broadway. On May 1st, we opened on Broadway. And on June 1st, we won every award you can win in New York. And I thought that's what Broadway was. You open the show, and everybody says fabulous things about you. That was your Broadway. That was, that was my Broadway debut. debut. I had never done a Broadway show. It happened, you know, within within six months. And uh, and then a year later, I had five productions in Spain, all over the country, uh, touring. So it was uh, it was it was kind of mind blowing. But again, Ain't Misbehaving, it has no story. Yet it has all the elements of story. I put all of the. I've been working with a book musical of uh, of uh, Fats Waller's life with Murray Horowitz, whose idea it was. And uh, there was a, Fats Waller just had a really fabulous first act and no second act because he died too young. So we kind of abandoned it. But I took all the research and sort of shoved it into this review. So even though it's a review, it's one song after another. You know all about where he came from, you know who he is, you know his life philosophy, you know what kind of person he was, you know where he performed, um, you know the world that he had to deal with, right? As a black artist in um, in Harlem in the, in the, excuse me, 20s and 30s. Uh, a, a, a hostile world in which the only way that you could, you could survive was simply be so good that nobody could... They couldn't. They couldn't ignore you, and uh, and as the show shaped itself, it has the trajectory of a dramatic piece. The character, the performers are not playing themselves. They are playing characters. They are characters who do not have consistency. They don't have. They don't have uh, uh, plots, but they have backstories. And uh, so, what is that? That's a play. It just doesn't have a plot. And uh, once again, I, I sort of. Uh, you know, invented this thing, um, and I think I, the only reason I did it was that I didn't like the I don't like reviews. So it it didn't for it to, for a review to mean something to me, it has to have uh, all of the things that make you you know go to a play or a musical: bigger reverberations, bigger meaning, some sort of context that's bigger than the play than the story itself. Um, so I just. Uh, you know, I also and I realized I also had sort of invented the jukebox musical, for which I should be you know pilloried, not given the Tony Award. But uh, anyway, um, there it is. Well, let's go back to this the review and because every focus group that I go to, of course, what one of the things we always hear is we want a story, we want a story, we want a story, and you found a way to do that without doing it. And I remember your the liner notes for Closer Than Ever that I studied uh, when really? I was, oh yeah, when I was singing What Am I Doing uh, mm -hmm. as an audition tune, or 16 bars of it anyway, not very well. Uh, I remember you saying, or the liner notes talking about, we had these story songs, story songs, story songs, which we're able to make this evening. So my question is, can any composer, lyricist team have a review, or is it... Does it have to be a specific type of song, or could you take any pop artist now and say, "Oh, I can add story to it," or does it have to be inherent to the material? Well, I mean, the answer to the question is any of those things are possible, depending on the nature of the of the songs. There are certain songs that are dramatic. Some are pop. Um, some of the great pop songs are dramatic. Billy Joel tends to write theater songs. That those songs 
go on the stage real easily. Some of them really have character, characters, some of them have plots, some of them have stories, uh, you know. Um, so, but some others, uh, you know, are just pop songs. And, and those one, those songs have a hard time, you know, going, getting, getting uh, finding a life on the stage. You can use a story, a song that doesn't have a story in it, in a storytelling way and get away with it sometimes. Um, with Closer Than Ever, those were real character songs. There was a real person. You introduced a person, the person told you a story or her story, and uh, by the end, you pretty much knew everything you needed to know about that, that story. That was inherently theater. I mean, that was, that was, those, those, the, this, the difference being that in Closer Than Ever, the five, the four people playing it can't be the same character. You can't uh, take the information from this song and apply it to the next song you sing. They had to be different people as they came out, even though they didn't change their costume or anything like that. Um, it, but you couldn't, uh, you couldn't attach them into, into some form that, that made a, uh, a plot out of them. So the answer to that question is it depends on the nature of the songs or the nature of the show that you're, that you're doing. Um, you can fit a undramatic song into a, an evening um, by making it, making it serve a plot point. Um, but it's not, not easy, um, but you can get away with it. Um, but you, but um, if you don't make it serve a plot point, then you're just doing a concert. And there's nothing wrong with a concert. Come out and do 18 great songs. I'm a happy camper. You know, I've, it's just, you know, theater is a story. So we brushed over the beginning of your career. We went straight to winning that Tony Award, frankly. But no, so do I. So <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, everything that happened before that. Well, tell me a little bit about how you, how you found the theater to begin with and why you chose to write and direct for the theater. Well... Uh, I don't know. My father was a, uh, a, a, a musical arranger and orchestrator and ultimately a band leader. My mother trained as a ballerina and sort of gave it up. But um, uh, So I started with that. And, you know, that was somewhere in my genes. And, uh, oh, I wanted to be a set designer. And I uh, wanted, what I really wanted to do was design scenery for Radio City Music Hall stage shows. That was my goal in life. <laughs> That's pretty specific. I just love the radio, radio city musical. My father uh, arranged an Easter show one year, and so I went in and saw the uh, uh, the dress rehearsal. In those days, the Radio City Music Hall did four stage shows and five movies every day, and they did it every day, which meant that when when the show changed, they did it. They did their final show at you know, nine thirty at night, and the new show at 10.30 the next morning. Scenery changed, every, everything changed. So the Rockettes would rehearse at three in the morning and the Court of LA would rehearse at four in the morning and they'd do a dress rehearsal at, uh, at uh, 8.30 and they'd open the house at nine, 9.30, because that was what I saw. I must say the, the thing that killed me was that I saw the dress rehearsal and then they pad the show on the first day, they had some extra, um, short subjects and then they showed the movie and then they did the stage show and they had rewritten it it wasn't the same my little 10 year old 12 year old brain just exploded I didn't I couldn't believe they would rewrite it between between 8.30 and 10.30 of course nowadays I, I you know that what they did was they rewrote the opening speech which was like 30 seconds long it probably wasn't a big deal. But for me, it was like rewriting the whole show. Uh, so anyway, that, that, that. So that's what I wanted to do. Oh, I did a review of some sort in my little grade school in Sayas in Long Island. And then went to uh, prep school in New Hampshire. And uh, I wrote a musical in my senior year there. I, you know, scandalized the school <laughs> doing a musical. 
that horror house. <laughs> it was like and a totally original yeah, musical. Yeah, oh well, yeah, it was. And uh, was and it good? It was well, considering that there was uh, no reason for its existence, uh, it was uh, wasn't terrible. Did you write the music as well? I I I I wrote. Uh, I sort of I co-wrote the book and I wrote the lyrics. That's that was the beginning of the end for me because you can always I could always get somebody to write the music, and I could sometimes get somebody to write the script or the story, but no one ever wanted to write the lyrics. So I always ended up writing the lyrics, and that is how I became a lyricist. Just um, because no one else would do it. Nobody else wanted to do it, and um, so I then went to Yale and I met David Shire in our freshman year and. In our sop, in our junior and senior year, we both we wrote original musicals. First one, uh, an adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac, <laughs> the most elaborate costume show, you know, period in, in history. And uh, we had no budget, but we just did it. I mean, we just did it. And uh, the next year, uh, uh, we, wrote, we wrote another one, and then uh, and we came to New York. After a little bit of, both of us spent a semester in graduate school, and then we came to New York, and uh, I suddenly said, well, uh, I'm a lyricist. What am I doing being a lyricist? The last thing I want to be is a lyricist. First of all, you have no fun. Everybody is at the theater having a good time, and you're home in the hotel trying to fix those two bad lines, and uh, which, if you had any intelligence you would have written them good in the first place. If you knew how to write them, you would have written them in the first place. And so you're, you're slogging away at it. And I, it, it was very disconcerting. Plus, when other directors, when directors were sort of dealing with our material, they tended to not direct them very well. And, uh, and in fact, do worse than that. Sometimes they actually did things that undercut what the song was about. So slowly I came around to the realization that what I really wanted to do was to create the show, not just write the lyrics, and that sort of meant I really wanted to direct the show. And, uh, so that started me on the course to that. I, I sort of said to myself, uh, well, I have other people studied directing in school. Other people have been directing shows for you know five years. I haven't done that. I'm so far behind. How can I possibly think of doing this? And then I thought, well, how bad could I be? Could I be worse than any of the directors who I worked with? This is a piece of cake. <laughs> so. And then, so I spent a long time just doing, uh, I did nightclub acts, I did uh, benefits, I did one-man shows, I did shows that I is invented so that I could direct them uh, in you know, all places and everything. And, uh, and that led me to some performers, and I, I got to uh, direct some plays, and uh, Funnily enough, since all I know is musicals, the first play I was offered to direct was Long Day's Journey Tonight. The, the longest, most non-musical thing there ever there is. It has, you know, I know, you know, light cues and theatricality. It's a play in which the lights go on at the beginning of the act and maybe at the end of the act they go off. Yeah, I always, whenever I run into a stage manager who tells me they're stage managing Long Day's Journey and tonight I always have lots of pity for them as they just sit there and call three cues. I know, I know. The the the, uh, the fog comes in in the second act. That, that's the, uh, that's the big, the big cue. So let me ask you, there, there's a trend emerging in your career. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing already. Number one, you uh, you didn't know how to write lyrics. You just felt, you just, I'm going to write lyrics. Uh, you didn't know how to create a review. You created a review. Directing, well, I just might as well. You just tend to do things, even though you haven't done them before. What gave you the courage that you could do those things? Well, what else is there? I mean, I, I, I guess I had... I guess the, the, the impulse to... to um, you know, to, the first process of, of creating something like that is you have to see it in your head. You know, I guess I thought theatrically. I thought that 
I thought of shows as things that I could like see and therefore creating them, writing them was a sort of a technical thing to, to do to, to make it come to life. Hiring actors, talking to actors, all those things were just are the things you do to get the show to happen. And uh, you know, you can't, you can write an outline, you can write a script, that nobody really knows what it is unless you do it. And so um, I just sort of did it. And um, I mean, I, you know, I did a, <laughs> did a musical review in eighth grade, I mean, in a school, but had no theatrical anything. I mean, we did that, we did a, Abe Lincoln pageant at one point, and that you know it, it, it was it was uh, silly, but I sort of got the I just I just started out by uh, doing by doing, and uh, it never occurred to me that that wasn't a thing to do. And when you got towards the bigger stages, and all of a sudden people started chiming in with feedback, including places like the New York Times or other, did that affect you at all? Do you read reviews? Well, I certainly read the reviews for the, for Amos Behaven. I mean, there wasn't a bad sentence in about a hundred reviews all around the country. Um, and I, you know what? It isn't that isn't the way it always works. It, I've it, heard this it, very it, recently. It, in fact, it, it, you may not know that, but they actually don't always say nice things about you. Um, so at, at any rate, that I suddenly you know I went from. Having you know some an off Broadway review and a, I mean I had a kind of reputation as a as a as a bright songwriter uh, and uh, but nothing of any major significance and then I just had this blockbuster hit so uh, from then on it just uh, you know it was easier to roll on after that. And what happens, or what happened when the first show that you did, we can't all have big, fat, global sensations like you did on your you first can't? No, oh, unfortunately not. No. I'm sorry to you have to school have you on this, oh, Richard, no. but oh, that's no. the way it is. Oh, my God, that's shocking. I know. Uh, what happens when that occurs in your career? Was it a shock to you when something didn't go that way? And how did you pick yourself up and go on to the next? Well, um, I mean, the next... The next show that I did uh, was um, was Baby, uh, which was extremely you know personal. David and I wrote it with uh, Sybil Pearson, who came in to write the book, um, and uh, the songs were were very much out of our experience and our life. The show got very nice reviews, not exactly money reviews, but you know, a range of of of. Uh, uh, extremely you know, positive reviews, particularly for the score, and uh, um, and it did well. I mean, we were sort of scrapped, considering we had no stars and no anything you know going for us. Um, we um, you know we were around for almost a year, and um, every day we wondered whether or not people would come to the theater and keep us open for another day, and they did. And, you know, just it, we just. Uh, Kept going. We had a little bit of a sinking fund that kept us going, and uh, so that was not. Uh, you know, I, I, I have not been told to get out of town yet. Um, and that show specifically is done all over the place. Yeah, I would assume. I mean, as soon as you record a show and it's got a good score, you know, it, it goes off and takes on a life of its own. You know, closer than ever. I didn't know it was. A, you know, it was again a show that was downtown, and we were not sure that it was ever going to uh, get through this week to the next week. Um, but the album had gone off into all the colleges. Every theater program kid was going crazy for this album. I didn't know it. We didn't know it. I didn't know it until we did the revival 10, 20 years later. And then all those performers who were now almost 40 came and said, you changed my life. I, my God, you can't, you know. I had that recording myself. And it's it's interesting you say this about the college kids, because I was one of those college kids. And then, you know, we had uh, Pasek and Paul on the podcast. Yes. And they talk about how college kids got a hold of their music. And now just Joe Iconis was on last week talking yeah, about yeah. how kids... Are kids really responsible for the proliferation of new composer lyricists out there? Is this the early adopters for us? Well, I, I, I think I think they are now. I mean, I, you know, 
closer than ever was was uh, you know ninety one, uh, and uh, basically fallen a great deal you know more recent than that. And Joe Economist is the same thing. I think um, I think there are there are phenomena that come along, and there is one right now, which is ever since it's been growing and growing ever since High School Musical, and then Glee, and then uh, all of the. Uh, uh, it suddenly become uh, acceptable to be interested in musical theater. The football player can't, in fact, come in and play Curly in the school production book and not be considered something that would not be laughed at. And so, um, you know, that's that's happened. And there's a great, great school, of a great quantity of people, of kids who are interested in the theater, and they're encouraged. It's it's not it's not a peripheral the way it used to be. Plus. I mean, there used to be like four colleges that had theater programs, musical theater programs. Now there are a hundred colleges that have, every one of them has a music. And they're all turning out talented, gifted kids who come to New York for the same number of parts, you know, and everything else. Um, but they, and they're, they're turning out writers and, and everything else. Uh, so the, the, uh, um, the theater has always uh, the theater's audience, generally speaking, was a was a grown up audience. Um, all of the great musicals, the kids did not go to them. I mean, the kids went and sat in the second balcony and had their life changed and all of that stuff. Um, but the shows were essentially for for uh, grown ups. That was the audience, and it it still is that. And musical theater is also a little stuffy. They have not really embraced modern musical forms and uh, um, and now we have there's there are generations of kids who have grown up who don't know what my fair lady is I mean, you know as far as that that's you could be talking about uh, a merry widow I mean it's like but they totally know Bruno Mars and, and pop artists do unbelievable shows these these arena shows are just they're they're Broadway musicals. I mean, they have scenery, they have dancers, they have, they tell stories because the, the artists usually shape their evening to sell, to have a kind of a, of a storytelling content. So it's not a big deal for that to, to come in. Pesach and Paul are a perfect example of that. They um, they are extremely smart about uh, about the history of. Uh, musical theater, but their foot is definitely in the modern world. So when they do um, The Greatest Showman, this is a, a show set in the past with numbers con the numbers staged like Bruno Mars videos. I mean, that the dance style is not, not you standard Broadway dancing, it's hip-hop dancing. What's that doing? In a, in, in, a, in a period show. Well, why not? I mean, that, we've always used, musical theater's always used um, a, uh, uh, a foreign, and has uh, used an anachronistic musical style. You, know, you, you pop songs, the pop songs in Oklahoma are not what anybody would have sung in Oklahoma in the period of the show. Um, but uh, you know, but that's what it is. So, in a way, the uh, the kids are ahead of us. They're they're really saying, bring this into the theater. Shows should have this kind of excitement. Oh, the other style gets to be a little stuffy, gets to be a little dull. Shows are getting a lot more exciting. Your dance is brilliant. Uh, by the way, basically, Paul, when they were in college, didn't know quite what to do. And they listened to Closer Than Ever and realized that you could have a show that didn't have a book and you could fill up an evening. So I'm very it, proud of that. Yeah, that <laughs> was this review called Edges, which landed on my desk. I'm really just thinking about this now because, of course, Jason Robert Brown had a very similar thing with Songs from a New World. Jason Songs Robert Brown, I, I bumped into him in a laundromat in the village and, and uh, we were both picking up our laundry and... and uh, he introduced himself, and he wanted to write uh, close to that. Sancho New World is his close than ever, in exactly the same way. 
You talked about the audience for Broadway being a little older and stuffier. Do you think an emerging musical theater composing lyricist team should write for that audience? Should they think, oh, I have an idea that will work for that crowd so I can be the successful? Thing is that any, anybody, the, the, the rules of entertainment don't change. You know, the, the rules of grabbing you with an idea, having a melody you want to hear, um, and how you develop it, those rules remain the same, whether it's in a, in a hip hop vernacular or whether it's in a Roger Hammerstein vernacular. Um, the rest is, is just sort of, you know, tree trimming. And, and uh, uh, <clears throat> the, um, you know, the, the biggest shows out there right now are incredibly fresh, could not have been written, you know. The, I mean, Hamilton is, of course, the prime example of an actual. A, a, you know, hip hop musical, except that Lin Manuel totally understands the history and the shape of, of, of conventional musical theater and delivers on that level totally. It is absolutely, you know, if there wa weren't hip hop rhythms, that show would play in exactly the same way. And uh, it, it, it just happened that he had a vision that the founding fathers at Hamilton in particular were the equivalent of, of uh, artists. Um, and he followed it through all the way to the end and created a, a you know, a, a earth-shaking uh, work, work of art. Dear Evan Hansen is the same thing, although it's actually a conventionally structured story. Um, uh, Come From Away is not, is not, uh, a, a rock show in any way, but it's structured like no show I've ever seen. It's basically a, it's basically a narrative sentence. It's a, it's an expository sentence. Um, it's a paragraph with songs in it. You know, uh, um, I want to tell you about what happened in Newfoundland. You know, uh, and uh, oh, the, you know, Matilda is one. Uh, Groundhog Day is one. Uh, Joe Iconis was going to have finally his his big breakthrough with a show that the kids would not uh, let go. Uh, I just uh, I just got to friends with my grandson who came down to see Be More Chill. As soon as the show was announced, they got on the phone and they they bought tickets, um, even though it was like for six months from now because. And I asked him where they got the, where the, how they heard about the show. And he said, well, somebody called me up and said, you've got to hear this. Oh. And another one said, well, I was just looking at what new, at new things and there was a show I didn't know, so I started listening to it and I thought that was terrific. So yes, there, there, there are kids going out and doing it. And when they do it, they become rabid. They also, they also said, we're gonna sit, I said, I said we'll, we'll meet after the show. And they said, well, We'll see the show, and then we're going to go stage dooring, which was a new noun I had never heard. But apparently, kids—it's a—it's a word which is we go and hang out at the stage door and get some get get autographs. Yeah, it's so funny. I used to do this too, and I was all alone. It was yeah. just me, nobody else. I missed be, Saigon for God's sake. I did would it. Do that, and there'd be like five people outside the door. And now it's—it's it's actually part of the uh, the process. I think it's because of the ticket prices. You spend that amount of money, you had better have your life changed for all time, you know. And you don't want and you don't want it to go away. So you hang out and say hello to people that put it work. Can we talk a little bit about your work on Saigon and how that happened and your work on a mu big musical coming in from overseas? Um, yeah, I'm sure. I, I you know, I, I just came from Providence where the national company just went together. It is so good. Oh my God, the production is just breathtaking. It's it's so rich and uh, a young cast that just it gives their heart to it. It's, just, it's great. Um, um, let's see, I, um, I was, um, I had done uh, Baby, which, you know, has some pretty uh, elaborate impressive lyrics and uh, um, somewhere in, in, that was like 83, 85 I guess was when Les Mis opened and after Les Mis opened uh, uh, Ella Michelle Schoenberg had this other idea based upon a uh, photograph they had seen Claude Michelle had seen this photograph of a Vietnamese woman giving her child 
to American soldiers so that the child would be raised in America. Um, and um, a, a, a child that she had had by an American soldier, which was, you know, and he thought that was heartbreaking. And from that, they sort of added pieces of uh, Madame Butterfly and, uh, and, and, and laid out the show. They write in French, and the, the, they did finish the whole first act. And it was Cameron who, Cameron McIntosh, who decided that this show needed an American writer, needed an American presence. Uh, it wasn't a European show the way that Les Mis was. Kirby Kretzmer, who, who uh, had written all of the Aznavour lyrics, who, who you know, was a wonderful, uh, wonderful writer, but, but Cameron thought it needs an American writer. He was completely right because um, all of the Europeans literally didn't know what Vietnam meant to America. It didn't just mean that we, you know, that it was a disaster for us and we lost the war. But it was, it was the end of an American mythology built in the Second World War. We are the good guys, John Wayne comes over the hill and saves the day, and we win the war. In Vietnam, we were the bad guys. John Wayne did not come over the hill, and we lost. And with that went, and profoundly, went something that we all needed to believe that we were. And uh, yeah, I think the Europeans' attitude was, uh, we've been losing colonies for a hundred years. We gotta get off or come off of it. Yeah, what's the big deal? Uh, but it, it was not so much uh, so much a a, a, a tragedy of a physical historical tragedy, but the the end of a of, of a of a mythology. I and mean, America is two things. It is what it is, and it is its its mythology. The American dream. Which is the sort of central image of the of the, of the show. Um, we had lots and lots of talks about Alain growing up in Algeria and moving to Italy and then moving to France, or Michelle and growing up in Vienna and moving to to France and then to England. Um, they that from their childhood, they the, the fantasy of what America was 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 gigantic and everybody we talked to there was always this no matter I mean you could be the worst you hater of America you could be um, you could be completely anti-American but the American dream was was a vivid and, and positive and glowing and that seems at least uh, at least it seemed when we were writing it that the to be universal I don't know if it's true now but uh, it was it was then and uh, so that was like part of the, the I, I don't know that they would have come to that on their own without an American writer who could have brought that sensibility to the show. Um, and uh, so it, the show was brilliantly laid out in terms of, of scenes and everything, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, written as a play really. And so what Alan Bobley and I did was, uh, we, uh, we just, you know, we would go to a hotel and spend three weeks there and, and write half of the first act. So I'd type it up, I'd type it up, it was a type, and then send it off, and then I'd forget about it for two months, and then we'd get another call to come back and finish the second act. So it was a, um, uh, it was the best uh, collaborative experience I've, I've had uh, all the way down the line. The brilliant director, Nick Heitner, on the show. Cameron, it was absolute best. It was, uh, it was so uh, on the money all the way through it. I will say that, that um, when Cameron called and asked me um, to, to do it, he sent me this tape that Claude Michel had made, which was the entire first act Claude Michel playing at the piano and him singing it in French. I did not know what it was. It had these pretty melodies and then it would have this strange 
rest of the team sections and um, and also it, this that was like 85 seven, 10 years after after Vietnam and in the 10 years since 70, 75 every novel movie and uh, play or anything about Vietnam failed America simply didn't want to think about it and so I turned it down <laughs> and uh, and uh, then, then I saw Les Mis, and I realized, oh, that's recitative, that's storytelling recitative. I get what that is. And uh, Platoon opened, and and was a you know a huge hit. And I realized, oh, maybe maybe we are now ready to 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 look at Vietnam. So um, I called Cameron back and said, Have you uh, hired anybody? Uh, he said, No, no, we were waiting for you, Richard. It's not true, but I, I, I liked uh, I liked the idea, and, uh, so I, then I met Claude Michel, and, and we went to, uh, went to work. Do you have a favorite lyric of yours that you've written? Well, um, I, I like I think the the lyric uh, uh, for um, if I sing from Close Rivers is that's about my father and, and about David's father. We both are, are sons of, of uh, uh, musicians, orchestra leaders, and uh, so that would be part of it. And I guess the other is the story goes on from the end of the first act, the baby. Um, uh, I, I like it when we when we write a song that is about something that no one has ever written a song about. You know, no one's ever quite captured that emotion. I think that's that's the goal, or at least that's what I'd, I'd like it to be. And, uh, and both of those songs are of that. You know. Is there, as you listen to new writers coming up, or frankly, even veteran writers, what's the most common, we'll use mistake, for lack of a better word, that you feel writers make? Um, not not really going deeply enough into themselves. Um, genuine emotions are often uh, contradictory, uh, unexpected, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes. Uh, and, but we always know when we're hearing it; it's got the ring of truth. It's, it, it could be a, it could be the blandest thought in the world. I mean, it could be um, it, this nearly was mine from from uh, South Pacific, just as simple as anything, or as complicated as uh, um, uh, no words you know, at the end of, of Jeremy Hansen, or or anything that's in uh, in Hamilton. But if you if you go into your heart, you come in, and you really are using your personal knowledge of humankind. The song takes on a kind of you. You recognize its truth. You recognize its life, and uh, and that is um, that is always thrilling, and. Uh, I would say whenever I like am asked to judge a class or something like that, I don't, uh, the, the question that always, you know, the thing I always say is, "Where are you in this?" I don't, you know, it's clever. I don't know where it's coming from. It's like it's in, it's an imitation of some. It's of, a, of an emotion that you think you ought to have. Um, but. Yeah. When Sheldon Wright Harnick wrote, my teeth ache from the urge to touch you. I mean, I okay, nobody, that's an unspeakable truth, you know. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you <laughs> and wants to thank you for your contributions to the American Musical Theater uh, by granting you one wish. What's the one thing about Broadway that drives you crazy, nuts, gets you super mad, that you'd want this genie to wish away in an instant? The most frustrating thing about our business. Well, 
Well, that's really, I mean, there's, there, are, there are so many. Uh, um, my, the, the thought that's in my mind that I'm having trouble expressing is the reading process. I call it death by reading. You, 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 uh, as soon as you have something that seems to be kind of complete, we have a reading. Readings are incredibly misleading, and they're very hard to tell what you've got. They can tell you big, bold problems. I, you know, I lose you here, or I lose you there. That, 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 that they're very useful. But we all know that something that plays well in a reading, you put it on the stage, and suddenly everything changes. Um, it's hard to imagine that Gypsy was written in nine months, or that some, you know, they got the idea to do South Pacific, and the first thing they did was call up Boston and book the theater. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> and they, they just wrote it, and it went out of town. Uh, uh, Kiss Me Kate went to Philadelphia, and they didn't change anything. The only thing that they did was that, that Cole Porter stood in the wings and handed Lisa Kirk extra verses to Always True to You, Darling, in my fashion because it was such a hit. Um, but uh, uh, I guess those days are gone uh, because you couldn't possibly get a show on on the basis of it just having been written. Uh, it's too scary, it's too expensive. I guess if I'm, the other thing is I just wish they weren't so expensive. Um, Broadway used to be the creative cauldron that's where the creativity was happening. Now, you have to go somewhere else and try it out. And sometimes, the process of you bringing the show in, by the time it comes in, has been over, so worked over and so thought over, and kind of, some of its life goes out of it. Uh, whereas it used to have a kind of, you know, um, a, a buoyancy. The other thing was that in, those days, in the classic musical days, um, all of those people learned, they had, they, they had conventional storytelling playwriting skills that came from the, from the 20s and the 30s, the well-made play. The, 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 they, were, they were playwright craftsmen. They all knew what a story was and they knew how to do it. Um, Younger writers don't have that craft and have to learn it. They can learn it, they do learn it. Isaac and Paul certainly learned it. Um, and Matt uh, Long certainly learned it. Um, it can be learned, but um, the process of, uh, of, of development is, is, uh, can take the life out of things. It's also true some of the people who are producing shows don't know a story if it hits them on the mouth and they don't know and they're likely to encourage things that shouldn't be encouraged and not uh, and discourage things that are fresh and strong um, I have certainly been around that and, uh, um, and, and the things that they're never stupid they're really smart they're smart, but you shouldn't pay attention. <laughs> uh, a very interesting answer. That was a lot of answers to one simple question. And all of them this fascinating. This genie is going to be exhausted. I just love the idea of what if we could decide, you and I, write a show right now, open it in nine months, and then try to do the same thing, but with three months and compare, three years and compare to see which one was actually better. I, I, yeah, I know. I'd bet money on the nine months. There's something about a deadline. Well, it, it depends on the show. Depends on, the, on, on uh, you know. I thought, because I think Dear Evan Hansen is just uh, really, really terrific, it, it, it reads and seems like they got this idea, they sat down and wrote it in one piece, and there it is. It, it was an eight-year gestation period that started out as a show totally different from the one that they ended up with. Yeah, I was at one of those early workshops, and one of the things I love, and I've said to Stacy and, and, and to the, the guys, I'm amazed at the work that they did from that first workshop. It, to it, it's so incredibly smart. I mean, they, they were so smart to, to, to follow it through. They were really lucky in their, 
and uh, bringing Steve Levinson in was really, uh, you know, and, and I don't know where he got his uh, expertise from, but he solidly knew what a story was. Michael Greif added a, another completely solid level of the same thing, and the show turned into something else. Um, and then, of course, Ben Platt's performance didn't hurt. Having a completely historic event, but those things happen. You, you, when the show is right, you get, you get, uh, you get presence. You know, um, things come along to make you. Uh, you know, there are there are times when you sit back and just watch the miracle happen, and, and you, you set it in motion. Amos Payne was that. I did all the pieces of it, and everything, and then when we hit. When we first hit an audience and the audience went crazy, I kind of went, oh, okay. I did all of that. Yet I didn't do that. <laughs> when it all comes together, there's just nothing better. I know, I know. It's, I always say it's a humiliating, depressing, discouraging process and the most fun you'll ever have. <laughs> And with that, I thank you for joining us and having fun with us today. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you next time. Look out Broadway, here I come. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theatre Directory a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now. And get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org. Because only together we rise.